We love Vince. We love Diana. And we are grateful for that family. They traveled with us to Teen Rev and, uh, and, and became teenagers again. Sort of. I mean, it's about like that. You know, you get around that many young people. Matthew 18 in your Bibles. Would you turn there with me now? I want to relieve everybody from the outset in this message because if you look at the title, you're thinking, oh my, what have I walked into tonight? Uh, Church discipline and restoration in the New Testament. Well, let me explain. First of all, this is sermon number five in a series of messages. It's not like I just took this message you know, and said, oh, I think I'll just preach on church discipline today. You know, this will be good. They'll love it, you know. Um, no, the truth is, this is a message that we're preaching in a series of messages about the church. And it's really been good. It's summertime. We're, we're you know, we feel this was a perfect uh, period in our church's life to do this. Smaller crowds, you know, more church family. And uh, we've been, you know, obviously Sunday morning's a, a much larger crowd. Uh, and our Sunday night is more of an intimate service. A lot of folks who serve in the ministry here are here tonight. Others who work on Sunday mornings, and you're here tonight for various reasons. Nevertheless, we make this service just as important and just as effective, and sometimes I feel like I actually do a better job preaching at night because I've already practiced once, right? So uh, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's even better. But, uh, so it is a, a message in a series of messages. We've been building up to this point. We're looking at... Are the potential of a new church covenant. Now, a new church covenant is, it, it's not anything we've decided on yet. It's just something we've been working on. And we've taken since January to develop this. And along the way, what happened was we began to study things in Scripture that in some cases we had never, ever, ever studied or preached before. That's what this is. I've never preached on this before. I've never heard a sermon, a full sermon uh, in, 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 a, in a church that I attended on this before. I never did. I never have. So with that said, I think it's important that we understand it's been neglected. It's, it's a truth. It's something in Scripture that has been neglected at Gospel Light for over 22 years. And so I want to read you our potential membership covenant, what it states, and then I promise you, let me say this before I get going, okay? Let me say this. This will really encourage you, okay? I think it encouraged the morning crowd. I promise you this, that I personally am excited about this. Now, that ought to encourage you because, you know, this is not negative. See, a lot of folks want to equate uh, the, the subject of church discipline. I mean, it sounds tough. It sounds legalistic. And what we want to do is, is hear that and say, oh, man, you know, I, I, and I'll talk about this in the message, okay? Man, I mean, where, you know, is this some sort of a cult? Is this some kind of a place where if you do one thing wrong, they, you're going to understand all that in just a moment scripturally. There's a lot of misconceptions about church discipline, but at the end of the day, I am super excited about practicing another scriptural truth and principle that we've just avoided. Don't ask me how. I think we just avoid some things that we're uncomfortable with. We avoid some things that, you know, we, we, we feel as if we just can't do this because we don't know how to do it. And we can learn how to do it. So there's so much here to learn. Let me read you what our potential membership covenant states. All right, here it is. To humbly and gently confront one another and receive correction from one another in accordance with the New Testament understanding of church discipline and restoration and to willingly submit to and prayerfully support 
the leadership of our pastors, elders, as they seek to oversee discipline among our church. And the two main passages that we're looking at is Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 5, really the whole chapter, but specifically chapters 9, uh, verses 9 through verse 13. All right, so... Um, Matthew 18, in verse 15, in just a moment, we're going to read that. But before we do, I want to make this statement that church discipline, the the word, the concept, the idea of confronting one another, that idea needs to be redeemed in our language. We need to look at what Jesus taught us in Scripture. We need to look at the way that Jesus approached it. Now, if we can't do that, hey, I'm I'm with you. Let's stay away from it. But if Jesus Christ himself taught it in scripture and he did he's the one who taught what i'm i'm just teaching what he did that's all i'm doing it's not like i'm saying you know hey i've got this idea or let's try this or i went to a conference and somebody told us they do this no no this is all from scripture so if jesus approached church discipline in the new testament church at jerusalem and at and at corinth if he approached it a certain way then i want to approach it the same way Okay, so look at Matthew 18 with me, and we'll read some scripture and get right into it, okay? And obviously, we're going to be really studying God's word together. It's going to be, it's going to be a good time. Verse 15, Matthew 18. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But... If he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And then the third thing you want to do is this. He says in verse 17, but if you neglect to hear them, number three, I know it doesn't say number three, but this is the third thing he says to do, tell it to the church. And then number four, if he neglects to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you that whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them." Now, there's a whole lot of great messages there. In fact, I have a message that I'm trying to develop right now about the concept of, of agreeing and gathering. And what's the difference between two people agreeing on something and three people gathering for something? And so it's not, I'm not there yet. I'm working on it, but I, I think I'm on to something. There's so many things in this passage that we could speak about. But what this is, what we're going to talk about tonight is this is Jesus in this passage. It's Jesus. And what he is doing is he's giving his first initial instructions to his disciples for the church. Now, the only other time we see the church mentioned prior to this is when Jesus said to Matthew, upon this rock, I will build my church, right? That wasn't necessarily instruction. It was just admonition about the church. It was, uh, it was exciting. The church was starting, and, 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 and Jesus was addressing that and speaking about the church beginning. But here, he gives his very first instruction to the disciples about the church. So this is not number 99 on the list of 100 most important things about the church. This is number one. Think about that. The very first thing. Number one. Number uno. Jesus says... 
The first thing I want to talk to you guys about, if Jesus were here tonight in the flesh, he would say, okay, we're going to talk about the church, and the first thing I want to talk to you about is how to confront one another when there's sin. (laughs) Number one, that's the first thing I want to talk to you about, because that's going to be the thing that causes the most problems if you don't handle it right. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it, when you think about it? And so Jesus says, look, let's get this, let's put this at the top. How to confront a brother or sister about, about sin, about, about conflict in the church. So obviously we need to see what Jesus was talking about here. And if we can see what he was talking about, then we can consider it. And then maybe we can implement it. Now it may look a little different for us than it looks for other churches. I mean, there, there is some ways that we can kind of talk about how to set it up and and how it would work best in our context. Sure, there's, there's, some, there's some gray area potentially, but there's not a whole lot of gray area when it comes to specifically the importance of it. So let's look at some reasons, first of all, not to have church discipline. And there are some, and I'm going to tell you why these things seem legit. All right, number one. Number one reason not to have church discipline is it's legalistic. All right, let me just address that. Let me talk to you like I'm trying to talk you out of it, all right? You got it? It's legalistic. You can't be a church of grace and be a church of discipline, right? You can't do both. You can't say you love people and then, and, and then have a, a system of disciplining people. Church discipline contradicts the grace of God. Now, we're going to come back to each one of these things and address them with Scripture in just a minute. Number two, what about Matthew 7, 1, Brother Eric? What about, look at it on the screen, Matthew 7, 1, our favorite verse because it's kind of like just as short as Jesus wept, right? So we know this one. Judge not. We love that one, don't we? Judge not that ye be not judged. See, that's your problem then at the church. You're always judging. So why not do church discipline? Well, we live in a day where the intolerable sin is to say that something is wrong. How dare you to actually say something is wrong? It's wrong to you. It may not be wrong to me. So therefore... We just don't say anything's wrong. Matthew 7, 1, judge not. Uh, What about this one? Third reason why we should not practice church discipline is people will leave. People will leave, Brother Eric. This is not a smart move on your part. This is not exactly the greatest church growth sermon you've ever preached. People will leave. Do we really want to be known? I mean, pastor, you know, okay, most churches want to be known, like if they have a church sign, right? It's like such and such Baptist church, the church of love, the church of joy, the church of acceptance, gospel light, the church of discipline. <laughs> Not going to work too well, right? I agree. You got some point there. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Number four reason not to have church discipline is we don't know how to practice church discipline. I mean, it's kind of dangerous, Brother Eric. Who's setting up the rules? And what are the rules? And what goes on here? And are you talking about like a judge and a jury and some sort of little room set up? Church? De- no, no, none of that. But that's a reason why many don't... Pra- hey, that's a reason why many don't practice a lot of things in Scripture. We, we just don't know how, so let's just skip it. We, it makes us nervous, so let's not talk about it. Well, another church does it, so let's not do it because they do it. And we don't like the way they do it, so we're just not going to do it at all. That's why we didn't have drums for a long time. You know, somebody else had drums, and, you know, and, and all of a sudden, we start making these really crazy extra-biblical rules, and we start determining things that the Bible says that it doesn't say because somebody else is, is doing it or not doing it. 
Now, the reason these four statements that I just made, let's review. Church discipline is legalistic. What about Matthew 7, 1? Judge not that you be not judged. What about the fact that people will leave? And then finally, we don't know how to practice church discipline. The reason why those four reasons have some validity is that we really don't understand what it is. We don't know what it is. If I would ask you, if you were to ask me, what is church discipline? What does it mean? What is it, Pastor? Why is it in Scripture? Well, we, we can learn together. Let's learn that. But before we do, let's go back to those four things and let's use some Scripture here. First, first of all, church discipline is legalistic. Now, I'm going to say this about that. That statement that church discipline is legalistic, legalistic just does not add up to biblical church discipline. If you compare that statement to the Word of God, it really doesn't add up. Honestly, it's the exact opposite. Church discipline is not legalistic. Listen, church discipline is loving. It's loving. That's the picture Scripture gives about church discipline. Let me give you one passage of Scripture that tonight we all need to be really thankful for. Really thankful for. Hebrews 12, 6 on the screen. Whom the Lord... What's the next word? Loveth. Is that right? Is that what it says? Whom the Lord loveth or hateth? Loveth. He what? Chasteneth. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son, every child of God, every follower of Christ, whom he receiveth. Do you see how loving it is that Jesus does not leave us in our sin? He doesn't leave us there. To ruin our lives. He doesn't leave us there to just keep on sinning. He doesn't leave us there to to mess everything. No, Jesus oftentimes will come in the form of the Holy Spirit and convict us of sin and correct us and chasten us. Discipline is a very loving thing. In fact, to be indifferent to someone's sin is the exact opposite. It's it's, it's hateful to let a brother. So what, what do we do? We gossip. We just talk about them. We're not going to go to them and confront them. We're just going to yap about their sin. Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? That's fun, isn't it? That's easy. I'll tell you what that is. That's prideful and it's hateful. It's prideful and it's hateful. When the scripture says, you love your brother if you go to him and confront him. It's the exact opposite. Our whacked out ways are just not scriptural. No wonder. We're flesh. Aren't you glad God's God, not us? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he, there are some that will know that name and, and be, have studied and read after Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but let me read you a statement from a book he wrote, and it's called Life Together, it deals with church discipline, here it is, just a short statement, but it's really cool, listen to it though, listen to it, nothing is so cruel, these guys from yesteryear wrote so just eloquently, Nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that assigns another to his sin. Nothing is so cruel as the tenderness, the the, the phony compassion that just leaves someone in their sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from sin. That's not the way we think. But that's scriptural thinking. All right, what about Matthew 7, 1? Let's, let's talk about that for just a minute. Back to Matthew 7, 1. Judge not this GB, not judged. Okay, like every other passage, let's look at the context. Let's not just pull one verse out and, and preach a big, long sermon about one verse without reading 
the contextual meaning of that verse. And let's continue to look at when it was said, why it was said, what else was said, okay? Matthew 7, 1, yes, you're right. Judge not that you be not judged. But look at Matthew 7, 4 or 5. Just a few verses down. And again, I'm, I'm, I want you to read these verses, but I'm just going to read you five for now because I can make my point with this verse. So judge not that you be not judged, but then a little later down it says, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye. So, so first thing you need to do is recognize that, that you've got sin in your life. I've got sin in my life, right? We're all sinners. There's none right, righteous, no, not one. All of us have something. And so he says, look, get the moat out of your own eye. Why should you do that? Why should you examine your life first? I love it. Here it is, church discipline. And then thou shalt see clearly. Then you'll see clearly. You get the sin out of your life. You learn how to take correction. You learn how to listen to others who love you and correct you so you can have your life in a position of holiness and righteousness where you can be right with God. You're not a hypocrite anymore. You go to them so you can see clearly to, to what? To what? To cast out the moat out of thy brother's eye so you can then help that person. Isn't that beautiful? So yes, judge not, but wait a minute. Don't be a hypocrite. Get the moat out of your own eye. Get the sin out of your own life so you can help somebody else get the sin out of their lives. Here's what Scripture is teaching. As you grow in holiness, you will help others grow in holiness. But first you must grow. And then you help others grow. That's what Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is all about. It's all about a sanctification process, becoming more like Jesus. All right, number three, we said this, people will leave. Well, this is in your notes. Write it down. This is not our church to grow. It's God's. It's not our church to grow anyway. And so the fact that people... Listen, I had a pastor text me this morning. This morning. This is no joke. This happened today. Early this morning, I got up about 6 a.m. And I I had a text that early. And it's from a pastor friend of mine who said, pray for our church. We had the lowest attendance we've had in about 10 years, and five more families left. And he said, he's he's teaching something in Scripture that people just don't like. And so they're leaving. And it's in Scripture. They're, They're not even leaving angry about arguing the fact that it's in Scripture. They just don't like it. So I texted back, I said, You know, do do you think this is it? Do you think these are the the last five families that are going to give you trouble? Do you feel like 275 is is kind of the bottom and now you can start growing? He said, I wish I could say that, but I still think we haven't reached bottom yet. And I just encouraged him. Bro, this is reckoning time. I've been there. I know what it's like to start preaching Scripture and leaving off all the extras and have people walk away and get scared. And wonder if you should just walk away and let somebody else take it. Truth of the matter is, sometimes people will leave. So what do you do when people leave? It's not my church to grow, it's God's church. This is not my church. This is not, this is God's church to grow. It's his church. And there are easier ways to grow the church. I mean, there's a list of ways to grow the church. Think about it. if I were to go right now to Lifeway Bookstore, and I were to say... 
I want, to, I want to buy a book on how to grow your church. I can promise you that they're not going to give me a book on church discipline. <laughs> Some of the modern ways that people are growing church is this. Number one, soften the message. That'll grow you. You'll get more people when you soften the message. Just soften, brother, and just back off a little bit. Don't, okay, okay, church discipline's in the Bible, but do you really have to talk about it? I mean, come on. I mean, can you just avoid that one? Soften the message, Eric. Number two, play secular music. You know, uh, uh, you know play some rock and roll in the church and just kind of mix the, the ungodly with the godly. A lot of churches are doing that. A lot of churches that are exploding in growth are just determining to bring the world into the church. Number three, and by the way, they're coming up with ways to justify that. Number three, preach a series on sex. Boy, that'll fill the building. Everybody wants to hear a sis. Very popular these days to just to preach a graphic series on that in the church. That's saying there's not a place to, to talk about some of those things, but but I'm not interested necessarily at this point in my ministry after what I'm learning to build a church using these methods. Or what about this? Give people money. Give things away to draw a crowd. And again, hey, I, I've been a church and in a church, and I've been part of a church, and I've led this church at times to be big on giving things away and giving money away and giving prizes away, and if you come, you get this. And, and I know we even are going to give you a cup of coffee and a book today for, for visiting us, a love gift, and, and I think that's different. And, I, and again, I'm not trying to, I know I've got to be careful how that comes across. I'm not trying to justify that by this, but I'm simply saying that I do feel like there has been extremes on some of these things, I think we've participated in some of those extremes where we have tried to draw a crowd using methods and ways that are, are just not God building the church, but they're us building the church. And at the end of the day, those people don't stick. They don't stay. You can have this big crowd, and the next Sunday you've got 50. Because there's no substance there. And I think we should avoid those ways intentionally. We're doing everything we can to avoid those methods of building our church. I want to be involved in something that God, can only be attributed to God. God's doing that. God's building that church. God's the one that gets the glory. He will get the credit if we let God build the church and not the trends of the day. Let me show you how God builds this church. You probably won't like it. But it's, it's you know, again, it's awesome if you think about it. All right, here's what I want you to do. Turn to Acts chapter 5. I want you to look at Acts chapter 5. you got to see this, because this is really unique. Acts 5. I want to give you a picture of the way God built his church. It's an illustration, really. But it's true. Verse 1, Acts 5. You ready? Here we are. Acts 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife sold a possession. <clears throat> Two members of the church at the time sold a possession, <clears throat> and they kept back part of the price. His wife, also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why did Satan fill thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, 
bear in mind, in church with other believers around, and Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. He died. I mean, God said, you crossed the line. So he falls out, and this is an understatement. Great fear came on all them that heard these things. I mean, the rest of the church went, whoa, that's serious. Verse 6, and the young man arose, wound him up, carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. So here his wife comes in. She has no idea her husband just passed away and just got buried in the backyard. Peter answers and says unto her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yea, for so much. Then Peter said, how is it that you've agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out too, sister. And there she fell down straightway at his feet, a second one, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church. Do you see here? This does, this does not sound like a way that, that you and I would, 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 would want to build our church, you know. Okay, come to Gospel Light, hear a sermon on sin, don't respond, and die. <laughs> you know. And yet we see something here in this passage of Scripture. We see an illustration here, really of Matthew chapter number 18. And what ultimately is happening here. Don't miss this. You're going to love this. Ultimately what is happening is... Look at Matthew chapter 5 again. Uh, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 5. You there? I'm going to get there. I turned. Let me get there again. You got to see this. Look at verse number 12. All right, so, so all that's happened. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest, there's no man joined himself to them. But the people magnified them. And verse 14. And here's what happened. Believers were the more subtracted. Does it say subtracted? Or does it say added? Is added growth? Does added mean more? It's incredible. And the believers were more added to the Lord and multitudes, both of men and women. Here the church is practicing church discipline and the Lord is adding. Here's the bottom line. God grows a church in very different ways than we do. Obviously. And I want you to see the relationship here, you and me. Let's see the relationship between the holiness of God amongst his people and the growth of the church. You see, listen, God is growing the church by creating a people that are radically and totally committed to holiness and obedience and everyone around them, everyone around us is afraid to join. Man, they're really serious about God there. They're serious about sin there. They're serious about living for Jesus there. And yet, even though folks might be afraid, according to Scripture, they're going to, to join the church because God is adding to their number. God is doing it. doesn't make sense. It defies explanation. But guess who gets the credit? God. God gets the credit. God knows what he's doing. It really boils down to that. Do we believe that God knows what he's doing? Or do we just believe, look, God is awesome most of the time. But right here, he lost it. He just, he really blew it. I mean, this is, 
He should have never put that in the Bible. And this Matthew 18 and this 1 Corinthians 5 that we're going to look at next week, that's whacked out. And look, I love you, God. You did good on most of it, but we're just not going to trust you on some of this stuff. I ain't going that route. Not anymore. I'm out. I, listen, if you're into that, I'm out of that. I'm going with the Bible. I'm going to follow the Scripture. I'm going to read the Word of God. I'm not going to be afraid of any passage. I'm not going to be afraid of anything this book says. Because if this book says it, it's true. And God makes no mistakes. And if we follow it, God will bless us. And God will add to the church. God will grow the church. We can see some illustrations of this in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36 on the screen, a couple of verses real quick. Just, just you know, FYI stuff. Ezekiel 36, listen to God talking to the people. Therefore ye say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went. And I will sanctify my great name. God's concerned about his name. God's concerned about holiness in the church. God is concerned about his reputation. Are you? Are you concerned about God's reputation? Think about it. It's scary. You know why most people, while many people won't go to church? Because we're no different than they are. We live like heathen. And when I say we, I'm including myself. I'm not throwing anyone under the bus. I'm talking about God's church as a whole. But I don't want it to be said of gospel light that we are building a church full of heathen that don't care. I was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you. How awesome is that? God says, you know how they're going to know I'm the real deal? When I, God, am sanctified in you before their eyes. When this world sees Jesus in you, they're going to want to come and say, I want that. I want that life change. I want what God's done. One more, 1 Peter 2, 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Wow. We don't show the world how holy God is by becoming like the world. We show the world light. We show the world holiness. We show the world righteousness. We show the world a radical commitment to him. And then God grows the church. Go figure. It's amazing. And God gets the credit. This is not our church to grow. It's God's church to grow. Now I realize there's going to be some people, probably in the next couple of weeks, that could potentially get upset. It could happen. There could be folks that, that, that get upset, and, 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 and that's why we're praying. I had, I had several people text me this morning. I have a lot of people text me on Sunday mornings. And they usually say, praying for you, praying for the message, thinking about the message, Pastor, blah, blah, blah. And normally I just respond, thank you. Or I usually respond more just thank you. I'll say thank you, love you, or thank you, appreciate it. You know, something. Because that does mean a lot to me. But today, if you texted me, the response was a little stronger. It was thank you. I really need it. Because we're preaching on a subject that could potentially upset people and, and make folks mad. I don't see anybody mad here tonight. And as far as I know, nobody got upset this morning. Maybe they did. I didn't see, it was a lot more people. But I've been praying, and I've asked others to pray, and we've been praying 
hey, listen, let's learn together how to follow a biblical pattern for this. And then finally, we don't know how to practice church discipline. Well, then let's learn how to practice it. Let's figure it out. Let us be a people who desire to obey God's word. Now, what is, what is church discipline? All right, let's move into that. And I'm going to move quickly here. So don't, don't, don't be afraid of our time. We're in good shape. 704, we're good. What is church discipline? Well, let me tell you some things that's not real quick, and these aren't in your notes, but it's not an, an interrogation of rumors. It's not getting even with someone. It's not an interrogation. It's not policing right and wrong. It's not like we have little police, church police that walk around. Sean, you parked in the widow section. I'm confronting you with sin. You're not a widow. You know what I mean? Well, my wife, she fell down and broke her leg yesterday, so we just, I don't care what happened to your wife. You're, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's not what this is. You don't have to, like, drive on the campus and wonder, where are the church discipline police? You know? Can you imagine, you know, a camera? You just used too much toilet paper. You're wasting God's money. <laughs> I didn't say that this morning, but this is such a toilet paper crowd. I could just, you can handle it, right? Sunday night can handle it. You guys are great. All right, so we're not talking about that. So don't worry. This is not some spooky, crazy, weird thing at all. It's really cool, to be honest, because God's cool. And if God says it, it's going to be good. That's the way I look at it. All right, so let's look at Matthew 18. Two facets of church discipline. We're going to look at Matthew 18 real quickly here. And, and, and then we'll, we'll have part two next week. First of all, there is formative church discipline. Now, what is formative church discipline? Real simply, it's this. It is continually training believers. Continual training believers receive from the word in the body of Christ as their lives are transformed into Christ-likeness. Continual training of believers. What that is, is that's Sunday church. That small group, or in the past we called it Sunday school, or it's a, it, it could be a discipleship group, or it could be an equip class on marriage. It could be where you sit with your spouse through a seven-week course on marriage, and you find out you're really making a lot of mistakes. And you're like, dude, I am messing up. This is, I'm under so much conviction. You see, some of church discipline is already happening. I mean, our church is, is growing, and there are people that are becoming more like Christ. Just by attending church and just by going to small group, we all need discipline. We all need it. We are all under discipline. Hey, if you are a disciple of Christ, guess what that means? Disciple means disciplined one. <laughs> the very nature of discipleship is discipline. In fact, Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, where he said, go into all the world and all that, he said, Teaching them to observe all things. That word observe, maybe a better translation would be obey. Teaching them to obey all things. Obey all things. I mean, all of us need to be taught. This is teaching, by the way. It's teaching. I don't think it's the best teaching. I don't. I don't think, I don't think Sunday's the best teaching. I think the best teaching is probably small group and discipleship. I think this is good. This is good. But it's not, it's not the best way to grow. I mean, I, loved, I, I love it when somebody says, yeah, I went to church Sunday, but I've been to three Bible studies this week. I'm like, my wife, she teaches two Bible studies a week. She goes to Bible study four hours a week in a church an hour and a half a week. So she's growing more 
by, by, by the iron sharpeneth iron discipleship small group approach. But we're all being trained in different venues. We all need to obey more. Does everybody think they need to obey more than they are right now? The word? I do. I do. I need to obey more. So the whole process of discipleship is a process of discipline. And do we realize that every single detail that happens in our lives, every single detail, every single issue, every single bad thing, every single good thing, God intends all of that for our sanctification. All right? Matt, uh, Romans 8, 28, right? All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Great verse, right? Great verse. Awesome verse. We can quote that verse. We know where it's at. We love it. It's our favorite verse. It's our life's verse. But what about the next verse? Why in the world do all things work together for good? All things. I mean, the bad things work together for good, right? That's when we really like that verse is when it's bad because it makes us feel better. I know it all works together for good, Pastor. I know it's uh, even my sin, even the mistakes I make. Exactly, it does work together for good. But here's why it works together for good. Next verse. To be conformed to the image of his son. Everything that happens to you happens to you. So you will be more like Jesus. Isn't that awesome? It's a process of sanctification. It's, it's discipline. It's God loves you so much, he won't leave you the way that you are. He, he took you the way that you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. Number two, there is restorative church discipline, and that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about restorative church discipline. That is this, corrective care taken by the body of Christ in matters of, keyword unrepentant sin unrepentant sin in a brother or sister's life. That's the key word, unrepentant sin. Matthew chapter 18 is not about the daily struggle we all have with sin. Take a deep breath. It's not about that. We all sin. We all struggle with sin. Matthew 18 is not about the daily struggle Matthew 18 addresses the person who is caught in sin. And when that sin is addressed. And if it's addressed, what does it mean? It means that brother's loved. It means he's loved. If we leave him alone and just let him sin, we don't love him. We, 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 in fact, I think it's, it's the opposite of love. We, we don't even care about that brother. We hate that brother. We, we can say, bless his heart. I know he's making a mistake, but maybe one day he'll come back. Maybe one day. No, no. That's kind of a false humility. Matthew 18 addresses the person who is caught in sin, and when that sin is addressed in his or her life, they just they continue in it. They don't listen to the word. They don't listen to correction from the word. Now, You've got to learn this right now, because if you don't, you might, you might get a little legalistic right here. So listen to this. This is the key statement of the sermon. It's in your notes. You've got to learn this. This is the foundation to all church discipline. The one foundation for all church discipline is the grace of God. Amen? The grace of God. That's, that's the foundation of it all. Hey, we need the grace of God, and we need the grace of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So discipline and grace are beautifully intertwined together. So let me give you the final notes. Approaching church discipline, and we're done. You can see that's the final four notes. These are the most important ones, though. You ready for it? All right, I'll, I'll be done. But you're gonna, you, this is it. This is the approach. Matthew 18, verse 1. 
Remember I told you we got to take the context? So we, we, we know Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is the actual teaching. But the whole book of Matthew, contextually, teaches us how to approach church discipline. Verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the great, greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest, God? So Jesus, listen to this, he calls a little child. Come here, little, little Joey, come here. And he sets him in the midst of them. And he says, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child. The same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Number one, the first way to approach church discipline is this. We need childlike humility. We need to be humble. Jesus sets the stage for church discipline with a picture of childlike humility. Don't miss this, church. Going to a brother or sister with a sin problem in humility. It requires deep humility. To go in pride, to go in arrogance is a terrible mistake and a wrong picture of biblical church discipline. And I feel like that when we, in the past, at least, and maybe even here in this church, I think many people have been hurt by brothers who went with arrogance and went with the chip on their shoulder and went angry. That is wrong. Guess what? You need church discipline now. <laughs> really? When you're angry, when you're arrogant, when you're prideful and you're trying to correct a brother or sister in Christ, they're not going to receive it and they shouldn't. Because you're not doing it the way God said to do it. We all need the grace of God every moment of every day. So it takes humility to humble yourself, to approach a brother or sister. But it also takes humility to receive correction, right? I'm not real good at receiving correction. Everybody with me on that one? That's tough. I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. You come to me, and I know how to turn it right back around on you. You know what I mean? I'm good. I'm manip- I can manipulate. If, I, if I'm not controlled by the Holy Spirit, I can be a manipulator. I can be intimidating, you know? I mean, I think that's the, the part of, let me just say it with, with some secular terms here. That's the part of the business of pastoring and preaching that can become really crooked. Preachers can be arrogant. If we're not careful, we can be manipulative. We can get our way. You see? We've got to be very careful about that. We've got to be humble. We all have a defense mechanism, don't we? Somebody comes to us with a problem, with a sin. Somebody comes to us with a concern in our lives. And the first thing we want to do is lie. Oh, that's a biggie. We just want to lie about it. Or we want to say, well, you know, you know brother, listen, thank you, but no thanks. You know, defense mechanism. Yeah, but well, you know, I saw you and, and then put the blame on. It just, it gets ugly because we have a hard time receiving correction. Listen, you can't approach a brother with sin until you have learned to receive correction yourself. We all have blind spots. Things we've done, things we've said, patterns in our lives, struggles in our lives. And we should want a brother to lovingly, humbly come to us and help us in those areas that we struggle in. Our pride needs to be crushed. Can I say this tonight to you again? Just being super, super transparent. I need you to help me defeat sin in my life. Does that come as a shock to you? Have you ever heard a pastor say that? Am I the first? I mean, I'm the pastor of this church, and I need you 
to help me defeat sin in my life. I sin, and I don't want to sin. I want to sin less and less and less. And can I tell you how I can sin less? If I have around me people that want me to sin less and less and less. Isn't that cool? I need that. And I'm thinking you need that too. But that takes humility, doesn't it? We need childlike humility. Number two. Number two. We need a deep concern for holiness. Concern. A deep concern. Listen to the shift here in in, in Matthew 18. There's a shift here that takes place in verse 5. It's really cool. It's intense, okay? He goes from, whoever shall receive this child, this humble child, right? And then he goes to this. Listen to this. And whoso shall receive one such little child that my name receiveth me, but whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Oh, okay. (laughs) Woe unto the world because of offenses. In your King James, you'll see the word offenses, and that's fine. But really what that is is that sin. It's talking about sin. Woe to the the world because of sin. For it must needs be that offenses come or sin comes. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut him off. Cut your foot off. Cut your hand off. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maim rather than having two hands or two feet and to be cast into everlasting torment. And if thy eye offend thee, Pluck it out. That's what it says. Pluck your eye out and cast it from me. It's better for thee to enter to life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. What is Scripture saying here? Can I tell you? Can I sum it all up in three words? Here's what Scripture's saying. Bottom line. Sin is serious. It's serious. And God is giving us a very graphic illustration pluck your eye out cut your hand up cut your leg up you guys are casual about sin you don't think it's a big deal you keep doing it over and over again like it's no big deal sin is serious number two we need a deep concern for holiness so here's what we need to ask ourselves as a church family do we really want to be a holy people Or would you rather just come to me and say, Pastor, we just want to come to church and hear a nice little message. Don't put all this. Put the verse on the screen. Okay, 1 Peter. Look at that. Look at that one. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it's written... Be holy, for I am holy. Do you want that? I mean, that's a good question. Is that what we want at Gospel Light? Do we want to make it hard for one another to be complacent? Do we want to make it hard for one another to enjoy sin? Do we want to make it hard for one another to, to, to continue in a pattern of sin? I didn't read this to the crowd this morning, but let me read you a letter that I wrote in the back of my Bible. A pastor wrote this. Listen to this. Imagine the church. It's large. It's growing numerically. People like it. The music is good. The people are welcoming. There's many exciting programs, and people are quickly enlisted into the work. 
and yet the church is trying to look like the world in order to win the world. It's done a better job than it may have intended. It does not display the distinctive characteristics of holiness taught in the New Testament. Imagine such an apparently vigorous church being truly spiritually sick and no healthy immune system to ground against wrong teaching or wrong living, to guard against wrong teaching or wrong living. Imagine Christians knee-deep in recovery groups and sermons on brokenness and grace being confronted in their sin, but never, or being comforted in their sin, but never confronted in their sin. Imagine these people made in the image of God being deep in sin because no one corrects them. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. We can't live the Christian life on our own. We can't. God, I pray, make Gospelite a church where it is not easy to lapse into sin and to go off into sin because we love, we love each other enough to confront one another with our sin. We need deep concern for holiness. All right, number, number three. We need a compassion for the hurting. Last couple of notes. We need a compassion for the hurting. I'm almost done. I'll give you this quick. Beginning in verse 10. All right, look at it. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you, Matthew 18, that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Verse 12. How think ye if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them is gone astray? Doth he not leave the ninety and nine and go into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? In other words... If, if a man loses one sheep, won't he leave the 99 to go after that one sheep because he loves that one sheep? And if he, if he finds it, verily, I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the 99 which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We need to be concerned with every single person in this church, every teenager in our youth department, every kid that goes, Charles, to your YPOA, thank you. Every single one of those kids needs and deserves someone who loves them and cares for them. Every one of them. We've got kids in our church that are suicidal. We've got kids that are on drugs. We've got girls that are having sex and guys that are having sex in our congregation. We need to be concerned about that. Love them and realize that is dangerous. You're hurting yourself. You're not, you're not living right. Listen, we love you. That's a road that's going to lead to destruction. That's love. Compassion for those that are hurting. That's what Matthew 18 is all about. The goal of church discipline is not to kick people out. That's what I thought it was. I thought church discipline was to kick people out. No. The goal is to restore brothers and sisters by the mercy and grace of God. And then finally, we need forgiving hearts. Number four, we need forgiving hearts. At the very end of Matthew 18, after 15 through 20, you'll see in verse number 21, then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Jesus says, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Infinity. Forgiveness. If you look at all these things together, look at them together. All right, look at that screen. Childlike humility. Humility. Number two, a deep concern for holiness. Number three, compassion for the hurting. Number four, a forgiving heart. Who does that remind you of most in the Bible? Jesus. Humility. He humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. 
He gave his life for sinners like you and me. We deserve to go to hell, but Jesus went there for us so we could spend an eternity in heaven. We need a deep concern for holiness. Holiness. God is holy. He's never made a mistake. He's never sinned. He's never thought a thought he shouldn't have thought. God is holy. That's his strongest and greatest attribute. We need compassion for the hurting. That woman at the well, he loved her. Where are that accuser, sweetheart? Where are they? I love you. I love you, sweetheart. It's going to be okay. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now go and sin no more. Okay? Won't you live like that anymore, girl? Won't you do that? You're worth more than that. We need forgiving hearts. On the cross, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they do. Who do we think we are? Really? We're not loving people when we leave them in their sin. We're not loving people when we just gossip about their sin. We don't love people when we, have you heard about so-and-so? Oh, it's all over the place. And I'm fixing to make it more all over the place. That's hate. Bro, that don't, don't cover up by just saying, bless their heart, let's pray for them. No, you don't, you don't care about them. Or you wouldn't be talking to other people. You'd be talking to them. It's just, it's awesome, isn't it? It's awesome. We just need to find out a way to practice it. And so in closing, I'm just convinced that there's probably some brothers and sisters in this building tonight who maybe you're on the edge. You're on the edge of making a really bad mistake. I mean, and, and I'm, I'm coming to you in this pulpit tonight and saying, don't, don't do that anymore. Please. God loves you, and you're worth more than that, and, and you don't have to do that. We can help you, and God's people love you, and, and, and he has a, God has a plan for your life. And maybe, maybe you've never been saved. Maybe you, you're looking into eternity with no assurance. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where I would go. I don't even know if there's a God anymore. I'm just so confused. Maybe you're just in need of salvation. You've never truly repented of your sin and turned to Christ. I want to give you that opportunity to come. For either one of those two things, we're going to have an invitation. Okay, Father.